everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I just don't know what to say. It's recording. <laughs> what do I say? Okay, got it. Welcome to the show, everybody. Shut up. Chris, how you doing? <laughs> You're listening to The Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 204. On today's show, we talk about ancient obsidian tools, cave paintings, and Egypt's oldest mummy. Let's dig a little deeper and hopefully find a massive pile of gold. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. Rachel, como esta? Oh, uh, Spanish. Let's see. No, Rachel, it's... Uh, uh, no, yeah, como esta? Como esta? That's good. That's yeah. how are you? Yes. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I've been here with you this whole time, so you'd oh. think you would know that, but... <laughs> you'd think I would. So <laughs> why am I speaking Spanish? Because, I mean, why not? But also, we're in Mexico. Yay! We crossed the border with our RV... We had no hiccups and no issues until last night. We'll let Chris tell you about that one. Yeah. But well, okay. I mean, the traveling part of it to get here was amazing and smooth and easy. Everybody, if you have an RV, should totally do it. Yeah, and I know we always talk about little non-archaeological things, which, you know, that's okay. Some people don't like it, but some people do. <laughs> but I will tell you that... Just two. I'm going to tell you two things right now. First off, we're down here for the whole month of February. It's really kind of the end of January as we're mm -hmm. recording this, but the whole month of February, and we are with a group called the Escapers, and mm -hmm. it starts with an X Scaper, and they're a subgroup of the Escapees, which is a decades long, really big like group of RVers. Mm -hmm. But the Escapers is a group of, I don't, I wouldn't say younger, but they trend to the younger age, but also the working age. So mm -hmm. these people like there's there's no activities in the day, for example. It's all in the evening. Yeah. So if you're interested, 
and you have an RV or you're a full sometime RVer or a full time RVer, you know, check it out. And if we didn't mention it, this is Puerto Penasco, which is at yeah. the northern tip of the Sea of Cortez, basically. They call it Arizona's Beach. Yeah, because it's like an hour from the border hour with Arizona, half. hour and a half at yeah. most. Yeah. Like it was a very quick, easy crossover yeah. and then a short drive in Mexico on beautiful roads too. I yeah. think people complain about the roads in Mexico a lot, but it they're great here. It's been great. Yep. If you're here anybody refer to Rocky Point. That's yeah. the uh, Americanized version. And in fact it says mm-hmm. Rocky Point on all the signs coming it in. It does. So. Yeah, it does. They definitely cater right. to the American and Canadian tourists coming down for the winter. Yeah. Anyway, if you are tired of hearing about our RVing things, please let us know. But also <laughs> if you love it, we are about to at some point in time I don't know when in the future because I don't want to shoot myself in the foot. <laughs> He's on me rolling my eyes when I know. you're like announcing a podcast that we barely even started talking about. <laughs> no, we've been talking about it for like a year. Well, right. Yeah, but, so, but it's getting closer. So yeah. check out Roadster Adventures, R-O-D-S-T-E-R adventures.com. And that is where you'll find our future podcast if one exists. If, if it we, happens, it yeah. will be there. It will be there. Obviously... I would tell you it's on all the other podcast services too, but that's where you're going to see it first because yeah. you have to have a web page for these things to happen. So right. it'll be there. You can subscribe to it there or you can go to all the famous podcast places. So hopefully we'll have that out. When it's really out, we'll be sure to let you know. Yep, for sure. All right. In the meantime, let's talk about Obsidian and why a whole bunch of Ethiopians a long time ago really liked it. Yeah, definitely. So... We have a uh, news episode this week. There's been some really cool stuff that has come out in the news lately. So it was definitely good timing. Why? Why? You know why? Because it's like January, February, and people people are publishing. People got out of the field in like September. They finished their articles. They've been accepted. Now they're in the news. Now they're in the news. Right. (laughs) Totally. Well, and this does kind of seem like one of those situations. So the article that sort of alerted us to this whole thing is called Archaeologists Discover 1.2 Million Year Old Workshop in Mind Blowing Find. Yep. It's always mind-blowing, but whatever. That's fine. (laughs) I have never seen a find that wasn't mind-blowing. Okay. And like really stupidly, this is in Vice Magazine, which like normally I'm not into like Vice Magazine as a source, but- They report on a lot of stuff. They do. And they, it's like the article is really great. It's well-written. I like the way they report it other than the use of mind-blowing. It's a little bit dramatic, but whatever. Journalists do that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And they also link to the original article that the study is published in which is in nature and it is a pay for article so you can only see the abstract and figures but just checking out the figures is kind of like fun to do sometimes with an article like this you can really get an idea of of what they're talking about right i will say as well you almost never hear these things in the background because i get them out but just in case there's a lot of people milling about there's we're in a group of rvs yeah you'll hear generator sounds sometimes you may not hear any of this and i'm just talking for no reason but Mm -hmm. either way i just wanted to preface that it's called real life podcasting get over it so (laughs) so what was found here is really crazy nearly 600 obsidian hand axes in Ethiopia, in an area called Melka Kuntur. I don't know if it's Kuntur or Kuntur. Or Kunture. Kunture, yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. So, so a hand axe, just to preface this a little bit, a hand axe is literally like the shape of an axe, but not a, not an axe that you would think of as far as like a like a metal axe from today. They're usually pointed. Think of like yeah. a really large leaf-shaped projectile point almost. Yeah, it's almost like just a big fat biface that you yeah. would find in this country, but like well, big. And biface means worked on both sides. Worked on both sides, yeah. yeah which so. these hand axes were, of course, because they have right. a nice sharp edge 
and usually a point, depending on how well they're preserved. Right. Probably the most famously known hand axe to archaeologists and people interested in the field is the Achillean hand axe, mm-hmm. which, you know, is more of a Neanderthal thing yeah. uh, and earlier. Yeah. So, but anyway, 600 obsidian ones, and obsidian is black volcanic glass. Mm-hmm. And specifically, they were found all along the Awash River in Ethiopia, oh. in that area. and Near where some other famous stuff has been found. Yes, a lot of stuff, like eroding out of that, that bank, right? Yeah. Isn't that where a lot of the paleo... Lucy was found near the Awash River. Yeah, paleoanthropological finds yeah. have been found here. And I suppose 1.2 million years is almost into the paleoanthropology range rather than like... It is solidly in paleoanthropology. Yeah, yeah, yeah Paleoanthropology sure. generally deals with either direct human stuff or human ancestor stuff so Mm -hmm. the homo line and beyond but fossilized yeah if you want to think about it that way yeah yeah so we're at the very beginnings of human origins here though Mm -hmm. and so what was interesting about this area is that these obsidian cobbles were deposited naturally all along this river probably from seasonal flooding and just like the natural sort of meandering of the river right yeah and hominins would use these cobbles to craft the hand axes but the cool thing about this is more than likely they started getting this idea the way a lot of early people did is they see what nature can do first. Yeah, right? so totally. Yeah. When you're on a hillside or especially a river where these obsidian cobbles are, you know, rolling down the river during a flood and, you know, when the water recedes and they go take a look, they're like, you know, oh, crap, look at these sharp ass edges on these things. I yeah. bet I could cut something. with I that. bet I could use that. Yeah, mm, totally. And then when you're like, well, I don't want to wait for the next flood. What if I just bang these against other rocks and mm-hmm. see what happens? And see what and happens. Yeah. Eventually you start learning that, oh, if I bang it this way, I can make a certain shape. And if mm-hmm. I bang it a lot this way, I can make a, a shape that is in my head and, you know, eventually mm-hmm. start teaching other people. And lithic technology is born yeah totally i'm sure it was just that easy (laughs) i mean that's how i do it so yeah um the cool thing about obsidian is that it's it it is very sharp like you said but it is also very fragile and very difficult to work with and i can definitely confirm that because i had a friend (laughs) who talked me through flint napping with obsidian one time like many many years ago and shout out to luke yeah, shout out to Luke if you, I don't know if he listens or not, but anyway, it was so cool to learn how to do it and so ridiculously hard. And I made the lumpiest little thing that like maybe you could call a biface. It was probably more like a scraper though, because I got some good flakes off of one side, but the other side, eh, not so much. But so because it's obsidian, it's you can probably cut something with it. it yep. Yeah. yeah. I, I could cut a, I could cut a person. <laughs> oh my so now she's talking about cutting people with obsidian and only watches true crime shows so yeah. watch out here i come if you no. are hearing this and you hear the code word help me no so that's not a very good code it's word it's not really not that good it's no. actually the best code word yeah because nobody would suspect it right right all right so yeah obsidian has been famously used in surgeries before too yeah because it's got like a, a molecule thickness for mm-hmm. the edge once it's made but it dulls super quickly so you got to like do it and then resharpen yeah. it if you're going to do something like that right right obviously back in the day they didn't do that but yeah. they would have had to resharpen rechar- it but a lot that, like initial strike is something that's yeah. real sharp yeah. and they also to deal with the fragility of it that's why the for any stone obviously but for obsidian in particular that bifacial thing Mm -hmm. where they're taking flakes off on either side to bring it together to make an edge that edge is much much stronger than just like a a sharp piece that has naturally flaked off so that that's part just like a little bit into lithic technology and like why they would do it that way Mm -hmm. they indicate that the use of obsidian by early humans was pushed back by 500,000 years in this article Mm -hmm. 
there isn't a lot of evidence of early human obsidian use, but there is some early evidence of it. There's hand axes yeah. in Kenya that date to like 700,000 years ago. It is this large concentration of these tools in a single source material. And the really interesting and cool part is that it shows that these early hominins weren't just like reacting to the landscape around them and using random stones to make tools. Mm-hmm. Instead, they they developed it as like a workshop, basically. So they were coming to this place specifically to find this material and make these tools. Right. And the the authors of the study have a really good argument for why this is true. Yeah, one of the quotes from the article because we are linking to the exact article. Yeah, in yeah, the show notes, the, yeah, right? it yeah is not in just there. the Vice article, yeah, but mm-hmm. the the paper itself. Mm-hmm. But from the paper, they say that they show through statistical analysis that this was a focused activity, that very standardized hand axes were produced, and that this was a stone tool workshop. And of course. Some of the ways that they can tell that are you, you can just look at the hand axes that are left, although there probably aren't any there. Oh, there well, there were some. There were some there, of course. There were a lot yeah. of hand axes there. Yeah. But there were a lot of them taken away, too, if this was a quarry or a workshop, right? Mm-hmm. So, But people are pretty good at taking debitage, which is the remains of making tools. And if you can find like a what we call a locus or a single reduction event where there may be somebody took a piece and then went and sat by themselves and then flicked off all these things, even if there's nothing left you can take all those and reconstruct them back into something, Mm -hmm. right? And you can kind of tell what it came off of. There's a very sophisticated computer analysis to do that, but uh, it's definitely possible. Yeah, totally. And I think that it's really easy to focus on the like obsidian being the like cool and sexy part of this and how humans were using obsidian. But it's just, it's almost much more important and interesting that this separation of behavior that happened here where mm-hmm. people were going specifically to this area to make this specific thing is is actually what's more important because it indicates like organized behavior was happening much earlier than we had previously thought and it just adds like a layer of complication to a community in a society that we we didn't yeah. know we didn't know for sure was happening that early so that that's what's really cool here yeah so what all this means basically is that as with all these articles that we read is that people were smarter than we thought and more organized and they found a source. They organized around it. They weren't really in probably bands and tribes, but they could have been in groups, Mm -hmm. you know, small groups of people that are maybe undefined and difficult to see in the archeological record because of how they lived. Mm -hmm. But that being said, they were organized enough to, you know, huddle around this area. This wasn't one person that did all this. Right. We know that, right? So, because that would be almost impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wouldn't be impossible, but unlikely, I guess is yeah, the right it, word. Yeah, it had to have been people going yeah. back to that same place, like, over a long period right. of time. And not only people, but more than one person. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, that's the whole point. For so, sure. every time we say, oh, you know, you, you read in a textbook or you read in a, in a thing that says, oh, humans were this and this and this, and they make these definitive statements, you always have to understand that they mean as far as we know. Mm-hmm. It's just not said that way, right? So when we push back the timeline of something by X number of years, that's just because now we have new evidence for that. Yeah, you know? it is the hard part about paleoanthropology in general is because just because you haven't found evidence of something doesn't mean it wasn't happening. It's the evidence just hasn't been there yet. Right. So you you can't assume that that something wasn't going on. And that is, I think, a pitfall of pseudo-archaeology and people in that area as they think, well, because there's no evidence, therefore it was not happening. And that's just not the case. Well, something else that may not be the case is writing getting pushed back almost twice as long as we thought it was. (laughs) So let's talk about that on the other side of the break. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? (laughs) 
Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 204. And now we're pushing back writing, but we're doing it in the form <laughs> of... Rock art, which is the only way we could really do it unless yeah. we found like an old journal from 20,000 years ago or like a piece of paper, which... That seems unlikely. Right. But... They had. I don't, I'm not going to really quote the first use of paper because I didn't really look at this, but yeah. it couldn't have been more than a few thousand years ago oh, yeah. because I know the Chinese were working with it. I know the Egyptians were doing it on papyrus even up to maybe even three or four thousand years ago. But mm -hmm. again, not past that. Yeah, for so sure. Everything before that was on clay tablets and then stone before that. Yeah. So it would have to be rock art. Yeah, for sure. Or something crazy. Yeah. Or time travel. Okay, let's not go there. What? <laughs> You're getting into the pseudo range again. Listen, it could always be time travel. <laughs> I think ancient alien theorists are right, but it's just us. It's just us. Yeah. From like, we're like the now, aliens. maybe maybe like next year sometime, like it pop could back. Be. Yeah, we're the aliens. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh my gosh. Okay, scratch all that. That's not real. <laughs> so this article is another one that captured my attention because like you said, you're pushing back the time frame on, some, on something that we thought we knew pretty well before. And like yeah. that always grabs me because I'm like, for real? And this one is cave drawings from 20,000 years ago may feature an early form of writing. Yeah. All right. So let's 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 see why they're saying this. Lines and dots that are found throughout the cave paintings of Europe are usually also found with depictions of animals, right? Okay. Now, in a recent open access paper, which you guys can all go read, we're, we're going to link to it in the show notes. But in this recent paper published by Cambridge University Press, amateur archaeologist Bennett Bacon presents the theory that three of these dot line symbols actually represent a like early form of written communication. You mean like a group of three? Yeah, there are three different ones. They don't oh, yeah, necessarily yeah. show up together, but they do mean different things depending on what combination of them that they show up together. Yeah, he thinks that the combination of these dots and lines actually represents sort of a rudimentary form of a lunar calendar. Yeah. Based specifically in the area where they were yeah, found. Yeah, like they're very regional. They're very specific to the different right. cave and the different time period or whatever, but it's like kind of like a lunar calendar thing. And then the third symbol, so that was a dot. The dot and the line were the first two symbols they analyzed. And then the Y symbol is meant to represent giving birth. Mm. So when that Y symbol is combined with various lines and dots that are the calendar, this represents the lunar month that the animal that these symbols are depicted with yeah. is likely to give birth. I mean, they show a picture of like, I don't know what that is, Uh swordfish or something or some mm -hmm. sort of some sort of big fish yeah and like do we really know when those fish are giving like I, honestly that photo was the worst example they could have yeah. picked because there's some other ones where it's like clearly some kind of large mammal type thing yeah with m lines and dots that like okay like they're right, right next to and they're right next to like the belly of the yeah. mammoth or whatever it was that was depicted and you know okay fine yeah like I, I could buy that right right so if this is true, like we said, this could push back the earliest proto writing and proto because it's not like 
letters and things that we would we would associate with writing. Yeah, there's there's other actual proto writing that dates back, you know, ten twelve thousand years. Yeah, but it's also again not writing in the form that we necessarily know it. It's more symbols. It's symbols. And, yeah. yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So that's why they call it proto writing. Mm-hmm. But if this is true, it would push back our oldest knowledge of this by about ten thousand years, and that is based on the, obviously the dating of this rock art, mm-hmm. which is also subject to its own interpretation sometimes. It you certainly mean, is. Some rock art's easier to date than others, depending on how it was made and what yep. it's associated with, but it's notoriously difficult to get it right. Yeah. So, as always, though, you already mentioned who actually did this, and I don't want to take anybody down for doing any sort of research that they're interested in or anything like that, but you do have to take it a little bit with a grain of salt that the person who is publishing this is an amateur archaeologist. They don't have the formal training. Not that you it's don't rocket science. Need it, but it's, yeah, it is helpful to, the moon. to sort through what's <laughs> what's a good observation and what's a bad observation and, and the scientific method and all that stuff that should be involved. But it also sometimes takes somebody thinking outside the box from another industry yeah. to see something nobody else has seen before. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and this is another... So, obviously, we're going to get to our skepticism on the results of this article, and, and we're, we're getting there. But the other thing I want to point out before we really dig into it is you really do have to pay attention to your news source. Yeah. So, when I first came across this article, it was in Popular Science, and it was presenting this article as truth as this is the findings of these researchers and this is now the new thing 20,000 years ago we have writing yeah and I was like that just like has anybody else reported on this just it just doesn't seem quite right and then I saw that the author was an amateur and I'm like hmm so then I went and found (laughs) another article and this was Smithsonian which I know we quote them all the time but I do like the way they report and their article title was could these cave markings be the earliest form of writing question mark right And it's a much more skeptical look at what these guys are saying and whether or not it's actually true. Mm -hmm. And so we've got links to both those articles so you can kind of compare how the two journalists took different approaches to presenting this study. And then we also link to the study itself, which is an open access article, which you can go read. So just a really great little lesson on how you should (laughs) really, really, really hold your journalistic sources to a high standard and call them on it if they don't seem accurate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Bennett Bacon. And you want to know what his job is? <laughs> <laughs> he is a London-based furniture conservator. So he's in history. Uh-huh. He's a historian. Uh-huh. An independent researcher. Right. Cool. Okay, that's fine. Sometimes people do think outside the box, and that's great. So what he did, he's got a long had a fascination with rock art. Again, great. He gathered images and formed a hypothesis, and then it basically seems like he like roped in some experts to help legitimize his ideas. Right. One of the researchers that he brought in is Tony Freeth, who is an honorary professor of mechanical engineering, and he has done a lot of work in deciphering the Antikythera mechanism, which is yet another thing that has a lot of pseudoscience mm-hmm. around it. I'm not, I didn't really deep dive him and what he's like, whether or not he's accepted in the community right. as being, you know, a stand up scientist, well, but it would take a mechanical engineer to understand the Antikythera device yeah, or mechanism. It would, yeah. it would. And, um, Andrew Kinkella on the pseudo arc podcast, he has a great episode about it, which we can link to. Yeah. So anyway, these guys with, Bennett Bacon being the leader here, they examined these marks in caves across Europe. According to the team, 
they are showing that the hunter-gatherers in the Ice Age were the first to use marks in a systemic calendar to document major ecological events, right? That's what their whole goal was. That's what they thought was happening. And it does seem like a logical conclusion, right? That people were using dots and lines to document things about the animals that they're near. Right. But they only look at three of the 32 well-documented recurring symbols in rock art from across all kinds of different caves and all kinds of different time periods. There's so many symbols. Mm -hmm. So they only picked three of them. Well, that's how rock art works, though. There's lots of symbols. So, yes, there's tons of them. That's true. But how are you going to assign meaning to these three and not and where those symbols overlap with each other like what what happens to the meaning when there's overlap like there's just a lot there that it sounds like they decided not to examine we call that graham cocking the research (laughs) listen to the life and ruins podcast if you want to know what that means i I think that also means like (laughs) cherry picking right oh yeah graham cocking cocking is good (laughs) so the other Criticism of this study is that they don't address alternate theories for these marks either. They just zero in on this one idea. And it really, really seems like it was a case of making the evidence fit your theory and make this pretty picture that you want rather than the other Mm -hmm. way around. Yeah. And the interesting thing to me is it's plausible. It is. Right. Yeah. If you go in with a hypothesis and here's the thing, if they cherry pick these these handful of symbols and they go in with a hypothesis and then they can prove that. Like if you know what this dates to and you can walk it back and say, yeah, this animal actually gave birth at what I can read here as this month out of the year. Mm-hmm. That's hard to refute. It is. Right. So have they done that? Did you read anything about that, about how, whether or not they're able to actually make predictions based on these markings? That I did not read anything about. Yeah. So I don't know that that was a part of their study. But you're right. That would be really interesting to know. I also want to know. Like when you get a cherry picking situation, which it already seems like they're doing here a little bit. Yeah. Did they cherry pick which cave drawings they wanted to include? Right. Like the ones that didn't show the that were like the wrong month entirely for that animal to give birth. Did they just yeah. not include those? Or I don't know. It doesn't say one way or another. And of course, who's going to like own up to that if. Yeah. But I don't want to accuse them of being shady either. I just don't know. Well, it also seems somewhat unlikely that a massive system agreed upon system for doing this would have been developed throughout this entire region. Right. Yeah. Like would everybody have just known that these symbols are are how you catalog this? Yeah. And that's another thing that was really unclear to me is like, is this all from one region or one group of people or like, what's the unifying thing? Because not every single group of humans 20,000 years ago would have been recording things the same way. So you would have had some kind of, variability and how are they accounting for that I guess would be my next question right so well it we're not saying this isn't impossible yeah it's it is definitely possible but you know like I just remember having those kind of conversations where you're just like theorizing on why <laughs> something is the way it is at an archaeological site that you're working on right like yeah. when I worked went to Peru we would have all kinds of crazy conversations about what this wall over here meant and it was mm-hmm. it was theorizing and it was fun and it's something that you always do especially over you know a couple beers or whatever yeah. like we always do that but you have to be real careful true well two things that help make those theories 
better and and I guess more logical are the more you know about the culture and the cultures that have lived in that area, mm-hmm. how likely is it that what you're saying is true, right? Mm-hmm. You initially want to look at stuff like that through the biases of your own your own upbringing, your own surroundings, your own life, or even like if you did all your work in North America and you all of a sudden you go to Peru for a season, mm-hmm. like you're going to take all that North American knowledge and you're going to go down to Peru and go, oh, it's probably, you know, a game drive thing. And maybe those things are similar yeah. across continents and across cultures, but you know, you can't just assume that. Yeah, it could, yeah. it could be totally different. It could yeah. be totally different. So. so the last thing I just wanted to mention, cause it, I just thought of this when I was reading this article and I've never even read this book. You're the one who told me about it, I'm pretty sure. But it's a book called Motel of Mysteries. And we may have even talked about it on the podcast before. I remember. But it's basically, it's a book where it's an archaeological dig of modern day today. Yeah. And what future people will think of digging up a motel in in, from modern day today. And it's just all kinds of completely wrong theories and conclusions about what they're finding in this motel that's set up just like it would be today. And they're logical, though. You 100% see why they're drawing the conclusions that they do in the book. So it's sort of like a farcical, like, look at the assumptions that we make as scientists and archaeologists when we're looking at just the remains left behind by people. But anyway, it just reminded me of that because you got to be careful not to do that. (laughs) Right. And there was also an old article. I I just had to look it up here from 1956, actually written by Horace Minor Mm -hmm. called Body Ritual Among the Nasarema about Mm -hmm. doing this sort of analysis and being careful about what you're looking at. Nasarema is American spelled backwards. He made it up completely. Right. Yeah. So it was an American anthropologist in 1956. We'll link to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, somebody else who's in the news a lot and is always seems like trying to grab the spotlight. I'm not <laughs> I'm not getting on him on it. I'd love to have him on the show. But, I know, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Zahi Huas. But he's been quoted uh, in an article and this has been all over the place. So we're going to talk about it. But it's about an old the oldest mummy to have been found in Egypt with the best preservation. And it also happens to be wrapped in a ton of gold. Yep. So back in a minute. <laughs> Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 204. And we're going to talk about a 35-year-old man named Djed Sepesh. <laughs> Sepsh. Djed Sepsh. That's probably right. Yeah. yeah. Or close to. Close to. Anyway, this article is, well, it's all over the place. So it is all lo- over, yeah. One of the ones we're linking to is from CNN Style, of all things. I know. Yeah. But there's all you have to do is type in old Egyptian mummy and you'll bring up like a yeah. whole bunch of different articles. Yeah, so, again, full of quotes from Zahi Huas, who is Egypt's former antiquities minister. He was, I don't know if he was ousted from his job a while ago, but he was definitely always seeking, like, the spotlight. But he's, he like, the face of Egyptian antiquities still. He is. You know, you think of the the kind of, you know, kind of large, obviously dark-skinned Egyptian man, like, that you may have seen talking about mummies. It's Zahi it's Huas Zahi, that's in your yeah, head, and you don't yeah, even know it. Totally. Yeah. He just has his hands in every... Every excavation yeah. going on, every major discovery, everything. Well, I don't know if people just go to him first for quotes, and that's why, or if he's like in the background directing things. I don't know. He's just very popular, and a lot of yeah. people go to him, and they know him, and he's very knowledgeable as well. So, well, I mean, you know, think he's about got his it. Problems, but like, what are the? I can think of two cultures that we always, always, always talk about 
new, important, interesting finds. Mm-hmm. One of them is anything from Egypt. Yeah. And the other one is anything from Rome. Sure. And I feel like there are just people in the background who are making sure that that stuff hits the new cycle and yeah. that there's press releases and we all find out about it. And yeah. you know what? It's working. So I'm sure there's some criticisms of the way that he handles things. But hey, we found out about this. So that's awesome. He's basically Egyptian Indiana Jones. <laughs> right. All right. And what he's found, or not what he's found, but what he's talking about. Has talked about. Yeah. Anyway, it has nothing to do with him, to be honest with no, you. No, it doesn't. He's yeah. just talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a 4,300 year old mummy. Yeah. I mean, just like. Okay, 4,300 <laughs> years. They buried him in the ground in a tomb. Yeah. Super popular dude, covered in gold. Yeah. And it's just like, this was 4,300 years ago. Yeah, this That's is... almost hard to imagine. It's before the Valley of the Gods. It's before Giza. It's before yeah. all of the, the big pyramids and the big landmarks that you can think of in Egypt. Mm-hmm. This is before all of that. Yeah, and not only that, but he was found in a... I mean, just the people required to put this thing together. But I know. He was found in a 25-ton stone coffin. Mm-hmm. And when they opened the lid, which I have to imagine is going to be in a movie someday. I know, right? It yeah. should be. Right. It's going to go... <laughs> yeah. Right. There's always air. <laughs> yeah. It's always like I compressed don't know. somehow. I don't know where that air is coming from. Well, but. prehistoric stone was well known for its... Uh, its Outcasting? Uh, <laughs> it, its compressing abilities and its, uh-huh. and its impermeability to air. Oh, right? I see. Yeah. I see. Sure. It's a total lie. Yeah. Anyway, they opened the lid and it was just covered in layers of gold underneath yeah uh, there was a band on his head uh, a bracelet on his chest everything covered in gold yep so and we do know that like you said earlier that this is a 35 year old man named let's go with jed sepsh does that seem right it's jed sepsh jed sepsh dj e day <laughs> i don't know what that was <laughs> dj 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 ed s-e-p-s-h I'm and just going to call him DJ from now on. DJ sounds good. Yeah. I, I think he was known because there's actual like hieroglyphics to oh, yeah. go along with all this. So well, that's how they how know his those. actual name. Even yeah. ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs have basically been translated yeah, at exactly. this point. So we know what's going on there. And yeah. he was found way below the surface. 20 yeah. meters or 66 feet underground at the Jazir El Mudir enclosure. Right. Now that sounds like a long ways and it is right now. But sandstorms in Egypt are Yeah, real. they blow. And over 4,000 years. Yeah. I mean, he was definitely, he was almost definitely, I don't know really, but buried underground in this underground tomb that was created, right? But it may have only been a couple meters below ground back then. Yeah, You know, true. or something. True, true. So it may have only been a couple meters below ground 20 years ago. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> yeah, it does move fast and it moves a lot. So yeah. that's true. And there's a famous step pyramid there in the village of Saqqara, which we actually talked about probably a number of times on the yeah, show. Yeah, I think we have. And it was near the actual, just the ancient step pyramid of Dozier. Of, yeah. Yeah. And that step pyramid was the first pyramid that, ha- that the ancient Egyptians ever built. And this is between 2667 and 2648 BCE. And it was during the early third dynasty and is known as the oldest ancient Egyptian stone structures, like basically the first pyramid that they ever built. And it stepped because they were still trying to figure out that right kind of construction mm-hmm. to get to that pyramid shape that they were going for. But they couldn't get those like smooth flat sides yet from an engineering perspective, I guess. Yeah. So they've got the steps, but eventually they do figure it out and they, they get the nice like flat sides that you think of when you think of a pyramid. Yeah. They actually found two tombs as well. And one of them dated back to the reign of King Unas during the uh, fifth dynasty. Mm-hmm. And that dates to between 2494 and 2487 BC. But, you know, since he wasn't covered in gold, we're really not talking about him. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
They found tons of stuff, though, too, as yeah. with any burial. I mean, it's clear that for 4,000 years, this burial hasn't been found. Yeah. Or it was found and they couldn't get the lid off. <laughs> That's entirely possible, yeah. yeah. But you would think the other stuff would have been taken if it had been found. You'd like think, They found right. a bunch of statues, and the, that includes three different statues that represent the same person. That's so crazy. I thought that was kind of neat. I yeah. don't know if it's like a progression through life, so right. younger to older, or if it's just three different depictions by different artists. Mm-hmm. But I think it probably is different depictions by different artists because they're saying that this gives them some insight into the art of the old kingdom which they hadn't really had before so if you have the same thing depicted by multiple artists then that will give you sort of that range of art that you might see in an area i wonder why they don't have examples of that they definitely found burials before but i wonder if it was just they've been looted or maybe they don't have that many that are of this like glamorous nature maybe you know and it might just be like if you don't have that thing tying it together, it's hard to categorize things and identify like what you're looking at. So yes, you have art, but you don't really know exactly how it fits together maybe. Yeah. But having three of the same thing by different people, you get something to sort of ground you in your interpretation of what art was like for them back then. Right. So as I mentioned, there were two tombs found, but again, the, the biggest, the real reason why we're not talking about that one, not because he's not covered in gold. He may be covered in gold. He might be covered he in gold. He may be a she. Yeah. But it's a, it's, it hasn't been opened yet. Yeah. So hopefully by the time this comes out, maybe they will have opened it. We'll talk about that on the next show. It's possible, yeah, because I think these this article dates to January 27th. So, you know, if it's going to be open next week, then maybe it'll have been open by the time we air this episode or yeah. they'll be about to soon. So there might be more information to add to this at that point. Right. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So the cymmetry here, and, and again... These are, this is a whole, Zahi Hawass quote, yep. but uh, he says it was likely, really Zahi, likely, because you found somebody <laughs> covered in gold, but it was likely a cemetery for the very rich and important members of society, um, second after the king. Yeah. Right? So the king gets the pyramid yep. and everybody else gets these. Now, I'm, I'm making fun of Zahi Hawass because he's famous for saying stuff like that, but he mm-hmm. also knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And if you start finding one glamorous tomb, you're not going to bury a bunch of poor peasants next to them. Right. You're, well, unless they're that person's slaves, <laughs> which has been done before. Right. But you're also going to, you know, you're going to like begets like, right? Yeah. So they're going to, you know, bury the same type of uh, classed people in the same areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is interesting that the step pyramid dates to 200 years before these tombs. Because it's just like, what was going on with the leaders in between there? Where were they buried? I don't have a good enough understanding of like mm-hmm. that history of that time period to know. Like, because these were rich members of the society. Where was the leader that they were? Well, they were underneath, you know? Something I also don't understand about Egyptian society is there have been many pharaohs, yeah. many leaders, many rulers. Many. But we have, you know just a few dozen pyramids yeah. when you look at the really small ones I guess too. what that means is that pyramids fell in and out of favor just like or anything does so they, they didn't just, always get one they were just really expensive to do like, yeah true like the step pyramid of Dozier he's like okay great you're gonna bury me here it took us a hundred years to make this yeah and well 20 years to make this yeah and you know everybody else was like okay but that's it but and cool. then it took a few generations we're not doing that again <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, remember that pyramid we built what a yeah. dick that guy no was way. yeah so we're not gonna do that anymore <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Anyway. All right. Well, that's all we got this week. And maybe next week we'll be talking about the uh, even more gold wrapped around the other. Yeah. The other I, the you know what? We'll keep an eye out for it and yeah. give it a mention, at least. Even if we're not doing a news episode, we'll give it a mention for sure. I mean, it probably is 
pretty well stacked, unless that one was looted. But you, they usually don't put the lids back on. So. No, probably not. Yeah. If the coffin's not open and they don't know what's inside of it. If it's in the same area, Zahi Hawass is probably right, even though it's much older. There's a reason the second guy was buried there, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. And that probably yeah. tracks with the first guy. So Yeah. Or girl. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But they say that they know the date of the last one from the Fifth Dynasty, so they didn't mention his name, though. I don't know why. They, Maybe it's not they on the, didn't, the outside. I'm not sure if they're releasing that information yet, or no, if they're they just trying to you yeah. know, keep it keep the surprise factor or the wow right. factor or something. I'm, I don't know. But right. I guess we'll find out when they choose to share it with us. If uh, they choose so. to share it with us, because yeah. that's the other thing is... Maybe it'll just fade away if it's not like important enough yeah. to talk about. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, with that, we will uh, get on to recording our RVing podcast <laughs> so you can uh, not be subject to that here, although we'll still talk about no this. No way. Stuff here. I'm going to have some tacos. Oh, yeah. Tacos. <laughs> Hashtag Mexico. Yep. All right. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Come.